This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson is using procedural maneuvers to hold up spending bills in Congress as a threat of a government shutdown nears. Johnson objects to funding for several agencies being bundled together, including for agriculture, military construction, and the Veterans Administration. He instead wants each item considered separately, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. This blockade puts Johnson at odds with Senate leaders in both parties. Yesterday, they took action to suspend Senate rules to circumvent the holdup. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, accused Johnson of being, quote, dead set on grinding down the gears of government, unquote. But Johnson maintains he's fighting for, quote, fiscal sanity. The U.S. and the, Sen- the U.S. Senate and U.S. House are both working to find a path to keep the government open before a September 30th deadline. A top Wisconsin Republican lawmaker is threatening to block raises for tens of thousands of UW system employees unless the universities scrap diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, a Republican from Rochester, told WisPolitics last week that UW system schools won't get, quote, a nickel from the state unless until they remove staff and programming related to DEI, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The latest pledge to withhold state funds involves more than $100 million for pay bumps set to go to 34,000 UW system employees over the next two years. Voss is a co-chair of that committee that has final sign-off on the money. It's not the first time Voss has targeted DEI at the UW system. Earlier this year, he and fellow Republicans included a $32 million funding cut in the state budget aimed at university diversity programs. Planned Parenthood began offering abortions again in Wisconsin this week for the first time in more than a year, following a U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning nationwide abortion rights. Appointments for the procedure were entirely booked up Monday at Planned Parenthood's clinic in Milwaukee, the Associated Press reports. But the organization did not say how many abortions they expected to perform. Planned Parenthood announced last week that it would resume offering abortion services in Wisconsin after a Dane County Circuit Court judge ruled that an 1849 state law does not prohibit consensual abortions. The fate of the Madison public market is once again up in the air because of financial questions. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the latest snag involves over-budget construction estimates. The lowest bid still came in about $1.6 million higher than the project's $20.8 million budget. The bid expires in late October, giving the city and the nonprofit market operator weeks to find a way to close the gap or risk having the project stall. The lawn anticipated market is slated to be built on North First Street and would include many local vendors and businesses. New data from the Madison Metropolitan School District shows student enrollment is continuing to decline and district officials say it could negatively affect their funding. Madison schools lost 500 students since last year, out of about 25,000 total enrolled, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The Madison School Board met this week to discuss the latest enrollment data and possible impacts on what the state receives in per-pupil funding. The drop reflects a years-long trend that district officials say is related to several factors, including lower birth rates and families choosing to send students outside their local districts. The Dane County Sheriff's Office announced that a new vehicle tracking tool in their arsenal helped them make an arrest this weekend. According to Sheriff Calvin Barrett, the flock's safety cameras use, quote, real-time intelligence, unquote, to detect vehicles that have been reported stolen. Channel 3000 reports that, in this case, the vehicle was first taken from a Hertz rental car location in Chicago, and law enforcement found it in the town of Burke several hours drive away. 
The suspect is a 23-year-old Madison resident who is now facing tentative charges of operating a motor vehicle without the owner's consent, two counts of felony bail jumping, and two counts of possession of narcotics. As software giant Epic Systems moves forward with a significant expansion of its sprawling Verona campus, the city is working to boost infrastructure to handle hundreds or possibly thousands of new workers in the coming years. Epic has plans for about 13,300 employees by 2024, with 1,700 of those expected to be hired this year, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Construction began this summer on five new buildings. In response, the city has several expansion plans in different stages for roads and other infrastructure to handle the growth. An Epic spokesperson told the State Journal that the company and city plan to offer updates on the projects in coming months. And now on to today's top stories. Two years after the CARES team launched in Madison, they've expanded their service again. The team is a resource for 911 dispatchers who get calls about mental health concerns or wellness checks. That way, the first responders to these tense situations will not necessarily have a badge and carry a gun. The hope is that this approach will make de-escalation easier and prevent any violent encounters. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the update. The Community Alternative Response Emergency Services Teams, or CARES, started off in 2021 as a small, concentrated pilot program covering just part of Madison. Chase Dedman, Madison's assistant fire chief, oversees EMS operations and is a leader in CARES. So the the CARES teams were developed to uh, respond to 911 calls for nonviolent behavioral health emergencies that come through the 911 center as an alternative to police. Um, Historically, law enforcement, um, which is similar to many cities around the country, um, law enforcement has been the primary responder to mental health emergencies. And so um, we had been researching programs that were emerging around the country that involved non-law enforcement responders um, to these sorts of calls. So um, we have a community paramedic from the City of Madison Fire Department and a crisis worker from Journey Mental Health that respond together to 911 calls for those nonviolent behavioral health emergencies. In the last two years, CARES expanded their service to cover the entire city. WORT has consistently reported on the program's progress. Last Saturday, the team started responding to calls on the weekend, before their service was limited to five days a week. This expansion is thanks to more funding from the City Council. It allowed CARES to add another staff member to cover the extra hours. As the program has expanded, their volume of calls has consistently followed. We've responded to over 3,300 calls. So in the first year, because we started small, um, we responded to about 930 calls. And so the second year, because we just had our two-year anniversary on September 1st of this year, and that second year, we ran over 2,200 calls. Essentially, CARES is on standby whenever a Madison 911 dispatcher receives a call. Dispatchers triage calls to CARES based on certain criteria, any mental health crisis or wellness check, without any reported violence or weapons. CARES currently responds to these calls on weekdays from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and on weekends from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Journey Mental Health, a private nonprofit organization that provides crisis care, is part of the CARES program. Sarah Henriksen is the clinical team manager at Journey and supervises the responding staff. Henriksen says that the community feedback has been positive. 
the community as a whole is really pleased to have an alternative to law enforcement. And frankly, law enforcement is is pleased to have an alternative to law enforcement to respond to individuals who are experiencing a behavioral health crisis that doesn't require police presence. And she says her staff finds the work rewarding. This is my dream job. I'm so glad that this exists. I think that's been a really strong sentiment on the team. People are really excited to have an opportunity to do to provide this kind of very direct service in the moment. Assistant Chief Stedman says that simply changing the response to mental health calls can have a huge impact. Our law enforcement partners in the city of Madison have had a lot of mental health training. And and no matter how good that police officer is at their job, just the fact that they're in a uniform and have a gun on their hip, um, it can be escalating for people depending on, you know, what their prior history is with law enforcement. However, he says that they can still use more expanding in the future. Right now, the teams are so busy that some relevant calls still have to be referred to the police. You know, as of today, the teams are busy pretty much from the time that they go into service until they go out of service. Assistant Chief Stedman also says that CARES is unlikely to ever create its own hotline. That's because 911 is more accessible and memorable for the average caller. As long as you call for mental health assistance during their scheduled hours, dispatchers will likely send CARES to respond. You know, you don't have to know that CARES exists in order to receive their services. If you are witnessing somebody having a behavioral health emergency or you yourself feel like there's just something not right and you want some help, we we just ask that you call 911. And the 911 call takers will triage those calls to the CARES team if it's appropriate. Folks outside of Madison have been asking for CARES to extend their reach again, potentially serving outlying communities. According to Assistant Chief Stedman, that's a long-term goal still in early talks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Republican legislative leaders in Wisconsin are taking more steps to set up an impeachment vote against new liberal state Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz. But is that something voters want? A new poll suggests most registered voters around the state oppose these threats. Mike Mullen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Following last spring's election, where Wisconsin voted in a liberal justice to the state Supreme Court, Republican leaders are further exploring a possible impeachment. A new poll suggests the idea doesn't sit well with voters. A Better Wisconsin Together, a left-leaning research group, is out with new survey results showing that Wisconsinites oppose impeaching Supreme Court Justice Jana Protasiewicz by a 24-point margin. The poll was released the same day Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss announced he's putting together a panel to look at grounds for removing the judge. A Better Wisconsin Together's Mike Brown says, based on the election and the survey, such a move goes against the will of voters. Wisconsin voters value their votes, and they expect that their legislators will respect the results of those votes. The impeachment proceedings threatening to overturn the election are very definitely in opposition to what a very strong majority of Wisconsin voters feel. Brown says the poll of 600 registered voters conducted by a national firm was essentially evenly split in connecting with Republicans and Democrats. Voss and other Republicans have floated a possible impeachment over opposition to comments Protasiewicz made on the campaign trail regarding redistricting. Her victory switched the court to a liberal majority. Brown notes that any misgivings about what the judge said prior to the election don't carry much weight. The Judicial Commission, which oversees and enforces court ethics, has already dismissed several baseless complaints brought by state Republicans against Justice Protosiewicz, and they declared the matter closed. Also from the poll, 46 percent of Wisconsin voters think any effort to remove Protosiewicz is driven by political motivations among Republicans based on the election results. 
This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last Thursday, the Republican-controlled State Assembly voted to approve a new redistricting process, one that they say follows the Iowa model. However, most Democratic lawmakers are skeptical and point to loopholes their conservative colleagues may exploit moving forward. State Representative Lakeisha Myers of Milwaukee was the only Democrat in the Assembly to vote outside party lines. Earlier this afternoon, she spoke with WRT News producer Faye Parks to share her perspective. Thank you for joining me, Representative Myers. Thank you for having me. So to start, can you walk us through Thursday's assembly vote? So the redistricting effort is one that's based on the Iowa model. It is about 80% of what Democrats have been asking for as far as a redistricting overhaul in the past, recognizing that there were so many similarities to the bill and trying to make an opportunity for amendments. A few amendments were able to be drawn up and we were able to vote on those amendments. And then I actually voted on final passage of the bill with the understanding and expectation that it was not completed yet and that it would have to go to the Senate chamber. So there, I'm sure, will be more negotiations and changes to come. And so you chose to vote in favor because you knew it was still in the works, that it wasn't completely finished up. Absolutely, to keep the process going, because I know that constitutionally the legislature is responsible for redistricting, and I have some concerns about just leaving that in the hands of the judiciary to do something that the legislature is supposed to do. And also because the bill creates a process. It gets us closer to a map, but even more than that, it creates a, a, a redistricting process, which is something that we're in desperate need of. So would you say this was also, your vote was also in the interest of collaboration across party lines? Absolutely, yes. So aside from yourself, this was not a bipartisan effort. What was the general attitude on the floor before and after the vote on Thursday? The attitude on the floor was that there was, I guess, kind of, it was deaf. And the deafness kind of came from my side of the aisle. There was not real interest in trying to engage the other side because it was viewed as though it would be a hoax and that they wanted to just rely on the pending court case that we have. And I disagree with that strategy. I believe that in the spirit of collaboration, that that's what we were sent to Madison to do. No matter when or how this particular bill, you know, arrived, 
it was at our doorstep at this point, and we had a duty to try to flesh this out and try to have conversation and try to move forward with getting to a place of getting a process in place to get fair maps. Did any of your fellow Democrats express surprise or frustration at your vote? You know, that's a good question. I'm sure some of them probably did because that, you know, it was the strategy that was that was laid out by leadership, but they know me well enough to know that I answer to the people of my district and overwhelmingly redistricting is something that they have made their voices clear about. And I don't believe I could have passed up that opportunity to try to get something done or at least start a process of trying to arrive at a process for us to get fairer maps and be able to look my constituents in the face. When it comes to this Republican-led redistricting effort, what are the main concerns coming from your liberal colleagues? I think they are concerned that AB 415 would slow down the process or in some way impede the the court case. I don't believe that to be the case. I think they're independent of each other. And, and all the sources that I've talked to would say that they are independent of each other. But I think even more than that, I just think that we can't put all of our eggs in one basket. You have to, you know, attack this issue from every side, whether that be, you know, legislatively by trying to get new bills, addressing redistricting, or if you have to look at for some remedy at the court to look at it for the remedy that the court or the guidance that the court may be able to offer. I, for one, am not going to be a fan or sign off on any maps that violate the Voting Rights Act or any maps that would dare diminish or water down African-American or Hispanic representation. So do you anticipate fair maps eventually being drawn through the state legislature? I think that is that we can get there. Yes, I do believe that we can get there. I think with the individuals that have, have looked at this on all sides and understanding the parameters that need to be in place and what we need to take into consideration, I do believe that we can get there. Yes. You referenced earlier the, the fair representation of black and brown voters. What are some red flags or concerns that you would look for? Things that I am looking for that I have concerns about would go back to the People's Map Commission maps that they that were drawn in that particular process. There were some issues with the Voting Rights Act being followed in that process. They were also looking at voting population, not just the general population, but voting age population and ability population. I think there are some different parameters that fall into place when you look at the Hispanic community and look at the African-American community, understanding voter eligibility. When you look at things like incarceration patterns, all of those things, at the actual numbers of folks that are able to vote. So what the true voting population would be in a district that is primarily made up of African-Americans or in highly concentrated areas uh, where African-Americans reside. So I think taking those items into consideration is something that we must do Also looking at like-mindedness for particular voters and being able, the the People's Map Commissions, I had some concerns about that. Um, When you look specifically at how District 4, Senate District 4 was drawn, under that particular proposal, it went from basically Main Street, Menominee Falls, to the lakefront, which had a wide swath of the city of Milwaukee, 
but there are some vastly different ideologies, socioeconomic status, and voting patterns that go along with individuals who live along Lake Drive versus those that are in 53206. So there, but that district would have covered all of that area. So I had concerns about the, how that district was drawn as well. So those are some of the things that I think we need to flesh out when considering the map drawing process. The concerns that I've read say that the Republican lawmakers, they could create several versions of these new maps, and eventually the last one they can pass through regardless. Um, Then, of course, we know that if that were to happen, if it's not a satisfactory redistricting, then the governor, Governor Evers, would potentially veto that. In that case, from my understanding, things would just eventually circle back to the state Supreme Court, which is something that you said you wanted to avoid. Is there a way to avoid that from happening in the first place? Can you see things moving forward in the state legislature without eventually getting back to the Supreme Court? I would hope so. You know, I have to to be hopeful that that is a possibility because redistricting is such a hot button issue on both sides of the aisle. I feel like we should be able to get something amicable and get a process underway that could be done. However, I think that is something that senators could also raise, which was that particular provision. So I don't believe that this will be the same version of the bill once it leaves the Senate to go to the governor's desk. Nine times out of ten, bills that we send over to the Senate usually come back a little bit different before they head off to the governor's desk. That's just a part of the legislative process. I don't see why this would be any different. After your vote on Thursday, did you hear from any of your Republican colleagues? Did they express an interest in working with you after that gesture? Yes, they did. They did express an interest in working and trying to get something done that was bipartisan. Can you give me any more specifics on that? Any particular people, any talks moving forward that you might be able to schedule? Absolutely. I did speak with Robin Voss, and we are scheduled to meet. Soon. So hopefully we'll have a robust conversation about redistricting and hopefully, you know, that will spur conversations with senators as well. And has he been receptive to your concerns about violating the, the Voting Rights Act, anything like that? Uh, yes. In brief conversation, yes. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Representative Myers. Absolutely. Thank you. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Cardinal Call, contributors Hewan Lim and Gavin Escott talked to two Daily Cardinal reporters about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at UW-Madison. DEI work will continue on campus despite Republican pressure to defund the university. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim. Today, we're joined by our campus news editor, Liam Barron, and state news editor, Ava Menkes, to discuss the Wisconsin legislators' clash with the UW system and its ramifications on the future. Thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you for having us, Gavin. Thank you so much for having us. Let's start with your article. You took a deep dive into the clash between the UW system and the Republican-dominated legislator. A few weeks ago, the legislator passed a state budget that includes $32 million in funding cuts across the UW system. Can you define what DEI actually is? What does it look like on college campuses? So DEI programs are installed on college campuses to help historically marginalized communities and underrepresented students um, feel safe and accepted and also kind of create um, an overall better environment. And the programs are also installed to further increase um, enrollment identity beyond like traditional student demographics. And one thing that's important to note about DEI programs, um, it, it stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're not just a Wisconsin thing. They're across colleges all throughout the United States. And we've seen similar pushes from some other uh, state legislatures to restrict DEI efforts and programming at their campuses. I think most prominently, which what comes to mind is pushes by Ron DeSantis in Florida. A new college of Florida is one that's had some pretty big issues related to staffing from the changes that their educational board have put on. Um, and so that's been an interesting one to look at. In your article, you mentioned how Assembly Speaker Robin Voss abruptly called for the elimination of DEI offices in May, a position he's since doubled down on. Was there any one particular incident that sparked Republican animosity towards DEI? I wouldn't say that there has been any one incident from the course of my reporting. This is an issue that has taken a pretty national stage, and it is something that's been seen in a lot of electoral campaigns and is something that has, I guess, not always been at the center of what voters are talking about, but more recently has certainly been at the center. So I don't know if I can point to one specific issue. At Madison specifically, we did have widespread protests and demonstrations after a white UW-Madison student was depicted spouting racial slurs in a video that went viral. Um, and so that had dropped, I want to say, the day of Robin Voss's announcement that he intends to cut DI offices across the system, which was a strange coincidence um, and one that made for a breaking news article from Ava. And Liam, you covered the UW-Madison's administration response to this repressure, as well as the reaction from the legislator. Do you know what those were? Yeah, so I had gone to an ASM meeting with a new writer uh, and honestly wasn't expecting to talk that much about um, UW-Madison's administration during the course of that. But Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, Lori Reeser, was present, uh, along with Vice Chancellor for Student Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, LeVar Charleston. And during their introductory remarks as guest speakers to the Associated Students of Madison, Ms. Reeser mentioned that Madison will not be cutting DEI positions at its own campus. And she had sort of introduced that statement in the context of, despite the recent legislature that's been passed, UW-Madison will not be cutting these positions. This was a pretty big deal because that's not something that we had really known for certain prior to that announcement. And then later, the Cardinal was able to get in contact with Robin Voss, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, to ask for comment on the decision by UW-Madison. And Voss very candidly said the UW system will not get another nickel or will never get another nickel from the legislature unless they cut DI programming across the system, which, again, sort of escalated this battle that's been going on pretty much all summer since the end of the semester. When you, you talked to Lori Reeser and she said that Madison would not cut DEI positions, did it seem like other schools could do that as well, Just take a stand? 
I will say that UW-Madison is a fairly unique position compared to other UW schools. Madison receives a bulk, I believe 33% of its overall uh, funding revenue for a given year from philanthropic sources or well, for this past year, 2022. And so that gives them leeway to sort of play around or have a different approach to issues that some other UW schools might not have the chance to do. So I don't know of any particular statements from other UW system schools in terms of whether they've made any solid commitment to cutting DEI programs. In fact, during the course of an article, Ava and I contacted every single UW school and received either non-committal responses, declined comment, or a routing to um, UW system administration. Media coordinator Mark Pish, um, who gave us a statement that didn't address that specific issue. So we really didn't know. Madison was part of those schools that we had contacted and really didn't know any specific actions and still don't really know any specific actions besides what Madison is committed to. The UW system is no stranger to sweeping budget cuts from the Republican-controlled legislator. In your conversations with officials, what stood out to you? I think for me, what was really interesting is I've kind of had a few interviews with Sen- Senator Royce, who is a Democrat, who she primarily represents students in Madison. And I think what she's brought up a lot is this idea that Republicans kind of have a political vendetta against UW system schools. There's also kind of controversy surrounding why the legislator has such a strong influence over higher education, which she has brought up repeatedly. I think one of the biggest parts about this, um, when it, at least when it's come to talking to senators or like representatives about this issue, is that there seems to, I mean, we've talked a lot about this, but there's kind of pressure on the UW system, like Board of Regents. Um, Jay Rothman has like publicly supported DEI, but then when it came to other decisions such as diversity statements, he cut those. And that came weeks after Robin Boss put pressure on the Board of, Re- Board of Regents to eliminate diversity, equity, inclusion. So it kind of circles back to this overall theme of having a strong a strong grip from the legislator onto higher education, which a lot of Democratic representatives and senators have disagreed with. And that's kind of what they relate to us as well. Adding on to that, it really sounds like Jay Rothman is trying to have it both ways, saying he supports and won't cut DEI programs, while at the same time, like you said, banning diversity statements from job applications and saying the system can't plan for recouping funding. What do you think will happen with all of this in the future, based on your conversations with officials? I think it's very unclear at the moment as to what's going to happen next. It is very big news that UW-Madison has stayed committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. It still is very up in the air, though, for UW system as a whole. As what Liam was kind of saying earlier, this issue is very non-unique to Wisconsin. If you look at like schools like Texas A&M, they have completely prohibited and have been phasing out diversity, equity, inclusion programs after just one course about respect and inclusion. So a lot of this, the rollout of how the elimination has been going and like where things will be headed are very unclear especially because UW system does hold a lot of what they can do is based off of approval from the legislator. So in many ways, they have to appease to what lawmakers are requesting for them to do. And there there are still developments ongoing in this. One thing that had come out of WIS politics, a Wisconsin political publication on Friday, was that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss voiced that he would seek to block a 4% pay raise slated for UW system employees if those DI programs were not cut from the system. And so I, I think there is still a commitment from Voss for sure. The rest of the Republican legislature, I think it's hard to paint in broad strokes 
But this is an issue that we'll continue to see throughout the legislative session. Also, I think it's kind of important to point out how like gridlock our legislator is. So kind of back to Roy's, she represents the majority of how a lot of Democratic lawmakers feel that these programs are necessary. She's reiterated to me before how the basic foundation of DEI being a way to foster a more welcoming environment is something that many businesses do, Fortune 500s do, and it's been kind of a basic necessity for many universities. So Republicans do feel very opposite about these programs being a tool of racial divide. So to reiterate, it's just unclear because of how gridlock our legislator has been for the past few years. There's a question that how much of the legislators' criticisms are genuine concerns that the budget isn't being spent on bolstering Wisconsin's workforce versus how much of it is culture war posturing? And I think you kind of alluded to this before. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think it's interesting. They want that funding to be redirected towards economic workforce developments or just anything to advance our economy. Um, I think something that stood out to me from the start is that they took away funding from our engineering hall at UW-Madison, which is a institution that would help elevate, well, our economy in Wisconsin through engineers, having more engineers in the workforce, and they decided to cut that funding. So for me, there's kind of a confusion on to why they would do that if they do want to support the economy, because that's one of our strongest programs at the university. And I guess one thing that sort of came up as you had posed that question, it's been not lost on some people that the coupling of DEI programs and employment initiatives seems sort of artificial. During the course of our most recent article on this issue, Ava and I had talked to UW Lacrosse's former chancellor, Joe Gao, and he sort of voiced that sentiment that he, he doesn't find it logical that diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are being tied to a raise in funding and support for employment initiatives. And so I do think that there is this idea from some that the the coupling of the two just doesn't make sense. Gao had called it illogical to us. I think that if you talk to many Republicans, they would probably say that there is too much money being spent on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that money should go to other places. And I do think that's where a lot of that gridlock lies in that they find the funding inappropriate and that they find DI efforts racially divisive or that they create institutes of indoctrination, which are both quotes from Assembly Speaker Voss. And so I I do think that there's a a very concrete polarization there versus some liberal and progressive schools of thought that those programs, um, like Senator Royce had mentioned to us, that those programs create an inclusive environment and help bolster enrollment and eventual joining in the workforce. Ava, Liam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us on, Gavin. Yeah, thank you so much. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. When salt marshes erode, they release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. In the meantime, erosion is projected to increase as seas rise and storms worsen with global warming. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz of Yale's Climate Connections explains this issue. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Scattered along the eastern seaboard and Gulf Coast, grassy salt marshes provide habitat for birds and marine life. They help protect coastal communities from flooding by absorbing wave energy and soaking up water. And they store a lot of carbon, because when marsh grasses die, they fall into waterlogged soils. It's a low-oxygen environment where plants break down very slowly, so all that carbon-rich material builds up over time. 
John White is a professor of oceanography and coastal sciences at Louisiana State University. Our wetlands have been here for thousands of years, and they've just been piling up organic matter. But as seas rise and increasingly intense storm waves batter the coast, many salt marshes are eroding. As they do, wetlands that have long helped store carbon could become sources of carbon pollution. When the marsh begins to erode, the waves basically tear up all that organic matter that's been sitting there. 800 to 1,000 years worth of organic matter washes out into these shallow bays. Much of it then decomposes, releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and making global warming worse. So protecting salt marshes can also help protect the climate. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us about the kite, a bird rarely seen in this area of the country. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about kites. And no, I'm not talking about the kind of kites that you fly. Let's go fly a kite. I'm talking about the bird kites. And kites are not a species that I'm super familiar with in general, up close in person. And the reason for that is because there's not really a lot of kites in Wisconsin. So I only get to appreciate them from what I know due to research or from being out in the wild to actually like see them with my binoculars. We've never actually admitted a kite to Dane County Humane Society for wildlife rehabilitation, but every day that they are here in the state, I think to myself, we should probably be ready with a plan and a standard operating for procedure for working with these species. So the reason I wanted to talk about them today is because 2023 is now being considered the year of the kite in Wisconsin. And it's really cool because we've actually had three separate kite species that have been identified in the state so far and have been observed here in Wisconsin. And we have the Mississippi kite, which is going to be the most common, but we 
we've also had swallow-tailed kites and white-tailed kites that have been observed. Most of the time, they have been identified in Door County, which is at the Potawatomi State Park. You can check out the little blurb that um, Madison Audubon put out about the kites being there. But there are about 39 records of Mississippi kites across 19 different counties. It actually had its first breeding pair of Mississippi kites that was in 2016, and that was near Janesville. And since then, there have been other confirmed nesting sites, but they're just a really cool bird that you don't get to see very often, but knowing that they do tend to come here through migration or to sometimes breed, especially as we're thinking about maybe, you know, temperatures warming or maybe food availability changing, especially when we think about climate change, you know, there might be more of a northern shift uh, range of these species that typically use the southern part of the U.S. So the Mississippi kite is going to be a lot more gray. It's kind of a drab bird, but it does have these beautiful red eyes and kind of like a red orangish legs. Otherwise, they are in the exhibitor families. So we're looking at birds that are soaring high above, kind of like a swallow or a swift or a night hawk might look, but they have the typical shape of like a cooper's hawk or a sharp shinned hawk or a kestrel. So they've got the wing curvature that's kind of far forward, but beautifully rounded and a really round and stout and short head with a curved beak. Now, the Mississippi kite is going to be centrally located in the U.S. in the Great Plains states. And so that's where we would see them most often during breeding, which is really cool to me because that's at home, right? And so it's not like the other two kites, the white-tailed kite and the swallow-tailed kite, where you're really only going to see them on the coasts. So I am, you know, looking at the distribution and the kind of the habitats of each of these, uh, but the white-tailed kite is going to be more on the west coast and then into Central America and South America, whereas the swallow-tailed kite is going to be more in, say, Florida, for example. And I like that the Mississippi kite is named Mississippi kite because we have the Mississippi River here in the mid West. And the fact that not only do they use the central Great Plains for hunting because they eat a lot of insects, which is great for farmers and things, it's great for any other state that has a lot of agriculture and so they're eating those pest crops. So I think that might be a reason why we've seen more Mississippi kites come up into our areas. So it's not just Wisconsin, but Minnesota and Iowa. But I think it's even more fascinating that the other types of kites, like the swallow-tailed kite, have been known to live in our area as well. So the swallowtail kite is going to be different than our Mississippi kite. They are aptly named because they look like a swallow. And I think of the barn swallow. And they have this beautiful forked tail. So they have this bright white body, bright white and small head, and then the outlining of their wings and their tail is all black. And so they're just absolutely gorgeous, but they're huge compared to a barn swallow, of course, and looking more like that Cooper's sharp shindy kind of, you know, exhibitor with that curved beak. And so the swallowtail kite is going to stay to areas where there's a lot of really great water and wetland habitat. So although you won't necessarily see them regularly here and they're not in their breeding area or migration because they're going to spend their year-round time in South America. It is super cool to be able to see them when they come up to our states and they're flying around, especially on areas where there's a lot of, you know, river activity. So like the Sugar River, for example, there have been some seen there. 
So if you go to areas that have a lot of really great wetland habitat that is set aside, I think that's where you might most often see them. But they were actually here previously. They were extirpated from Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so, you know, we used to have them in much of the Midwest. And I think because of their nesting locations and trees and other habitat loss that they have gone through, that's why that they are more centralized to the southern U.S. They also tend to use a very specific tree type to breed in, and it's considered the southern yellow pine and i'm never gonna say this right but i think it's called the lablali pine but we'll just call it the southern yellow pine it's actually the second most common tree behind the red maple here in the united states but that is something that they would use preferentially for breeding so yeah we're not going to see the swallowtail kite as much but when you get a glimpse of them you get that long forked tail and they're really big compared to a barn swallow maybe maybe it is maybe it's a swallowtail kite so Mississippi kite, we're going to see more commonly, and we are going to have them breeding in our areas more often. Swallowtail kite, probably more just visitors. And then the white-tailed kite, which is a really neat bird, but it's going to be more what they call seagull-like, meaning that they kind of look like a seagull in flight, but they have a beautiful short rounded tail, and as they are named, their tail is bright white. So they have a nice black eye striping. They kind of remind me of looking like a, like a northern shrike, for example, with the eye striping, but yellowish legs and they have some black towards the end of the wings or more of a dark gray to black but that beautiful white tail really does stand out so just like the mississippi kite these guys are also eating a lot of insects but they will also eat rodents and tiny possums and shrews and some reptiles and amphibians again you're going to see them more towards the west coast in opposite of your swallowtail kite on the east coast and then of course the Mississippi kite being centrally located. So those are your three kite species. And what I really think is most important to know is that, you know, I'm talking about kites, not because we have one in rehabilitation right now, but because we always want to continue learning and knowing about the species that visit our area or that might show up because that one migrant bird could be showing up at our doors at any moment. And if it's sick, injured or orphaned, or we've got some other breeding activity we can document, Rehabilitators just end up being in a really cool position for that. So for example, if we were to get a Mississippi kite in as a baby, you know, when we're reporting that data to where that nest site is located, which we would keep private, that might help for the bird breeding atlas, for example, which we've participated in adding our data to in the past. But also if we get one in, we can at least document that, hey, it was here in the state. It might've gotten injured, but it was here, presence, absence data. Then we also like to know about what would their standard protocols and rehabilitation be? What is the food that they need? What is the habitat? What is the cage setup like? And honestly, we'd be connecting with a lot of rehabilitators in all parts of the U.S. and even around the world to figure out, you know, how could we best keep this animal in care if it did need rehabilitation. So that's what we're there for. And although we don't see them very often, we have to be ready. And so that's a big part about being a rehabilitator is studying, research, reading, trying to learn more about different species that are in your area so that you can be ready at a moment to say, hey, yep, the species came in. I know a little bit about them. Let's try to effectively keep them in care and do the best that we can with them. So if you ever do find an animal that's sick, injured, or orphaned, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thank you for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Hee Won Lim, and Gavin Escott. 
Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz of Yale's Climate Connections. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe at trusted podcast directories. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Inuestro Patio. Good night.